Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at chabacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. All Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash slate money and using the promo code slate money. And by Trunk Club. Answer a few simple questions about your look, style, and size and receive a trunk full of great looking clothes that fit perfectly and make you look amazing. Only pay for the clothes you keep and shipping is free. Go to trunkclub.com slash money. And by Goldman Sachs. Get information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the limited means edition of Sleep. Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined, as ever, by Kathy O'Neill, the blogger and data scientist, mathbabe.org. Hello, Felix, and everyone. Hello, Kathy. And as ever, there's also Jordan Weissman, the Moneybox columnist at Slate. Hello, y'all. Jordan wrote something massive for Slate (laughs) about welfare reform, which is a fascinating topic i'm okay i'm slightly being snarky here but it is a fascinating topic (laughs) and um because you don't have time to read jordan's eight million word article on welfare reform we are going to talk about it on the podcast and you can just listen to us talk about it instead um we are also going to talk about a victory for the union last time we ever heard such a thing but first i am going to talk a little bit about an ontological question, mm. I would say. <laughs> um, one of the more curious pieces of news of the week, not not quite as curious as the fact that Tribune has n- changed its name to Tronk, but curious oh, all the same. Are you are you a Tronk hater? I, I am a Tronk hater. I think Tronk is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I think it's the first time in, in years that anyone has given a shit about <laughs> the Tribune company. Yeah, but they <laughs> only give a shit because it's stupid. Anyway, yeah. we're not going to talk about Tronk. We're just going to drop the word Tronk randomly into our conversation because no one knows what it means. Um, instead, we're going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about Elizabeth Holmes, who we've talked about 
a few times on this show before, the founder of Theranos, the what what Matt Levine calls the blood unicorn. Um, <laughs> and, and now the bloody unicorn. And, um, and the fact that Forbes magazine, which for some reason seems to have been granted the power by consensus to determine net worth of anyone rich, has written down her net worth from $4.5 billion to $0 on the grounds that there's a bunch of preferred stockholders ahead of her who've put in about $850 million, and the value of the company is probably around $850 million, so there's really nothing left for her in the event of um, a liquidation or going public or anything like that. Now, I don't really want to talk about Theranos here, because we've talked about Theranos in the past and we have nothing new to add. What I want to talk about is this whole question of how much are you worth? As, yeah. as being an interesting question with an actual answer. And what I want to talk about is this question of Elizabeth Holmes being worth $4.5 billion le- last year. Um, let's assume, for the sake of argument, that Forbes is right, that she's worth zero right now. Um, does it make sense in any real way to say that Last year she was a billionaire and this year she's not? Or have we just kind of discovered that Theranos was a crappy company and therefore she was never a billionaire? Well, listen, first of all, if you were going to be philosophical about this, then can we even – can we actually scrutinize the concept of someone being worth Yes, yes. Money? That's exactly what I want to scrutinize. I, don't, I mean I'm just saying like people are worth – they have value outside of their – their cash flow. Is I'm it? sure she's a lovely person. Okay, well, I actually, well, first <laughs> of all. Are you talking about like personality capital? Like, well, I'm just like, as a human being, like we don't say, oh, you're worth, you, mm. you don't have money, so you're worth nothing. No, if, if, if you remember the, um, was it Ken or Letter wrote a big profile of Elizabeth Holmes in the New Yorker, which was full of various Silicon Valley ca- venture capitalists trying to set her up on dates because they were all like, you're such a nice person, but you don't seem to have any right, life right. outside work. Well, look, I mean, th- from my perspective, if you if you're going to think about things in terms of money and payoffs, this makes absolute sense in the following, and it's a, actually a victory for science that it's now worth zero because we thought that there wasn't uh, there was a lot of shifty science going on. It wasn't evidence based, and now people have lost faith in it. That's a good thing. The reason we had a high value before isn't because we knew there was going to be payoff. It was because um, there was like a distribution of possible payoffs, and the high end of those, that distribution was extremely high because it was expected in, in in that case, which the probability was low, but it was possible that it would disrupt this extremely large industry of testing. Now that the distribution has changed, it's gotten very, very unlikely for that to happen. So the the expected payoff is very low now. Yeah. Or around so, okay, the value so, 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 so what you're saying is that one year ago, Elizabeth Holmes's net worth was a function of a probability distribution, yes. which was a real thing one year ago. And even though the probability of Theranos being worth hundreds of billions of dollars was low, it was non-zero. And therefore, because that probability distribution was a real thing, Elizabeth Holmes really was worth $4.5 billion. I mean, it's, it makes as much sense as any sort of option in the market. It, it has value. Like, there's always a possibility that the world will be destroyed and there will not be a payoff for anything. But yeah, I mean, I, exactly. I, I do think there's some question about even if the future payoff was potentially 
worth something on that, you know, probability distribution, what she could have actually extracted from her shares at that moment, right? There's the question of... Yeah, I mean, no one was yeah. saying that she had yeah. $4.5 billion of liquid wealth, which she could spend on, you know, billionaire whimsy. Well, exactly. And I think to some extent, and, and not totally, but when we're talking about someone's net worth, you kind of want to be discussing it in terms of, okay, if you, this person had to liquidate everything right now, sell off their basically illiquid assets, just, you know... Set, put you know sell everything for a market price. How much cash wait, wait, would they wait. have? Are we at that talking moment? about market price, or are we talking about liquidation? Because those are two very. That's different true. Things. Yeah, I'm sorry. They're, that's actually true. Because a liquidation, a fire sale, you're going to lose value. But I think essentially because the, the, yeah. we knew that the, the four and a half billion dollars was actually based on the market price. Well, yeah, it's based on the valuation from their investors. But I think that you want to assume if a person was going to try and sell their shares on the market at that moment. And in their, you know, in their business and whatever, if they're going to sell their home at that moment on the market, how much money would they end up with? Assuming that they're not, you know, being, they're not losing cash because of a fire sale situation. And, and there, there's a reason for that. You just want to know how many resources somebody has available to them. It's, it's, a, it's a very, um, it's, so, okay, it's a calculation so as some utility. So know? I want to ask you the question then. So, so Kathy's come down on in favor of the, yeah, she was worth four and a half billion. What What's your answer to the question of how much was Elizabeth Holmes worth last year? I, I don't, you know, I haven't sat down with my calculator and green shade uh, to do <laughs> the numbers, but I think, you know, it, in the end, it depends on could she have actually sold her own personal stake in Theranos at, at a given moment for, you know, something akin to what... Uh, the you know it's something similar to what the valuation the her other investors were giving it. And, and I don't know that. I don't know that answer. I'll jump in here and say I I didn't actually say she, yes she was worth four and a half billion last year. I didn't personally build that probability distribution even of no, but her the value of did, her stake. And we're, we're trusting her investors. Let's ass- okay, assuming that. Um, I do think there's a little bit more nuance if you don't mind me going into it between a, uh, the difference between a liquidation and the market value of something yeah. even when you don't have liquidation when you're just simply selling your stock there's impact on the price when you're selling your stock yeah. it goes down a little bit even if people aren't like worried about a liquidation sale so there's like it's a real it is a philosophical question what does it mean to be worth something because you own things that are "Quote unquote on the market worth something." Um, it, 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 this is this is. I mean, without changing the subject too far, this is very similar to the question which we ran into every day during the financial crisis of you know, is this bank solvent? Yes. Yeah. And and you have a bunch of assets and a, you have a bunch of liabilities, and the assets are worth. And then that, the, the big question is how much are your assets worth. And then the next question is what does that mean? Yeah. And if the assets are only worth what you could get for them if you had to sell them into a plunging market where no one really wants to buy assets, then you're insolvent. But these things all mean different things at different times. And I think that when you're coming, when you're talking about something like, you know, dynastic wealth, dynastic wealth by its nature is not something which can or should necessarily be able to be liquidated in the space of a couple of months. It's it's a permanent Thing. And you know, and when you're talking about selling it, you're talking about you're just assuming there is a market for it. And so it comes up to the other question. We we talk pretty frequently about how a lot of these startups don't even go IPO. They have no plans to go IPO. So it's not even clear what market it would be selling into to sell these shares. Yeah, it's it's true. I think I, I mean I mean as a rule, this this kind of philosophical question gets harder. Um, 
for I think a lot of ways, the richer people get because a lot of extremely wealthy people have um, either their their wealth comes from um, privately held businesses, closely held businesses. The Koch brothers are an example. Um, you know, they Koch Industries is their wealth. You know, how do you value that exactly? Is it you know? Up, well, I mean, that's debate? something valuable. I'm sure that yeah. you're not. You know that that if you gave. Warren Buffett, the numbers, then he would be able to put a decent number on the valuation of Coke Industries. Yeah, and you can look at the income stream they get every year. But I'm just saying that when your wealth is bound up in a non-public company, as a lot of very rich people's well, uh, you know, fortunes are, um, it does get a little fuzzy, and, and you do uh, run into these questions. And I, I like your your point of uh, the larger it gets, the fuzzier it gets, because at some point there are things that are actually so large that the number of possible buyers is very limited. So the the question becomes like, who would buy this? Unless you can break it up to into like very small bites. Exactly, which is which is one of the interesting things about something like Mike Bloomberg's net worth is basically the value of Bloomberg. And there's almost no one who's rich enough to buy Bloomberg. So then you're talking about hypothetical stock market valuations. Um, but We used to say thing, that like the Saudi Arabia. Like Saudi Aramco. But let me just yeah. tie this up um, with the other thing here, which we haven't really touched on, which is not so much the question of net worth, but the question of billionaire status. Because mm -hmm. it seems to me that billionaire has a certain meaning, which is not just, well, if you add up all of your assets and you subtract all of your liabilities, then the answer has three commas in it. You know, the <laughs> billionaire is a certain status of having so much money that you will never be able to spend it all in your lifetime. And Elizabeth Holmes certainly never had that much money. If you, if you have, if billionaire means I can, you know, fund whimsical experiments into artificial intelligence and space travel or decide to bankrupt Gorkamedia because I feel like it on a whim, you know, then Elizabeth Holmes was never even close to being a billionaire. And so there are very different types of billionaire in that sense. Yeah, I think, they're, they're, uh, one of my favorite um, descriptions of the distinction between billionaire and millionaire was a few years ago in an article about the New York club scene. And it was talking about how once upon a time, if you were a millionaire Wall Streeter and you walked into a club, you'd get all sorts of attention lavished on you. And, you know, you'd have, you know, the models coming left and right. And now it has to be a straight B. Otherwise, you're just another guy in the club. And I think that is that actually. You have to be a straight B? A straight bill. Yeah, you have to have a oh. B. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know the lingo. <laughs> and so like, and that was the idea. It's like if you, you know, there's there's a, a certain uh, social cachet now that you have to have this ludicrous sum of money to, to have. Otherwise, you're just another hundred millionaire. Or I guess it just begs the question, like of the people that are, you know, that kind of billionaire that you just discussed that can like bankrupt Gawker, for example, what was the moment that they became, went from the whole Elizabeth Holmes status to their current status? And I, th I think that's a really good question, but it normally happens, you know, in the case of someone like Peter Thiel, I think it basically happens the day that Facebook goes public. Well, that's what I'm thinking. So why yeah. are they avoiding going public? Because, yeah, that's a really good question. Well, he it wasn't up to him. Um, Anyway, if if we have any billionaires listening to this um, podcast, do do write in the I email think address. Go public. That Just go public. <laughs> the, the, we we email us on slate money at slate .com and tell us what the hell it means. Also, and tell whether... us why you're listening at this point <laughs> to us. I'm curious if we have any billionaires who are tuning in. Um, anyway, all right, we are going to move on to Kathy's favorite subject, Uncle Jordan's favorite subject. But before we do. I am going to tell you that I really honestly could 
do with a nap right now. I'm with you. Yeah. That, that was evident from it was the like moment a, you walked in. A rainy, <laughs> heavy day outside. Can we just all go take a nap? I feel like I feel like if you're driving a car and listening to this podcast right now, don't don't start feeling sleepy <laughs> because all bad things can happen. We don't have self-driving cars yet. But generally, naps are good things, sleeps are good things. Try and get more rest. And you know where I'm going with this, don't you? I, it's either mattresses or sheets. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't there's know. actually, given our sponsors, there's pretty, rain, there's maybe, pretty wide, there's a distribution of probabilities here. <laughs> um, this one, no, this one is mattresses. <laughs> this one is Casper mattresses, which are the obsessively engineered mattresses made out of springy latex and supportive memory foams. And they're super comfortable and they're super great. And they come in a box. It's incredible technology, and it will get shipped to you for free, and you get to try it out for free for 100 nights, and then if you want to ship it back, you just put it back in the box. Or they'll even send you a new box, and you can ship it back, and it's and the whole exercise costs you nothing, but you will sleep really, really well for 100 nights. And obviously why they're doing this and giving you a mattress for free for 100 nights is because they know you're going to love it so much. You're just going to keep on sleeping on it beyond 100 nights because it's going to be a great mattress. Your life is going to be transformed. You're not going to run around in a sort of tweaked, over-caffeinated state, but you're going to be grounded and mindful and productive <laughs> and all of the things that we want. And you can do it all just by buying the right mattress. Amazing. So um, use my promo code, which is Slate Money, um, to get $50 off your Casper mattress. They're cheap. To begin with, you know, there's little as um, $500 for a twin and up to $950 for a king. But you get $50 off that. So they'll start just at $450, which is super cheap for this incredibly good mattress. Um, go to casper.com slash slate money. Use the promo code slate money. Get your $50 or sleep well and then just feel superior to all of the rest of us who can't seem to get enough rest. Um Kathy, yeah. Tell tell me about. Listen, I I, yes. I don't know, six. Would you say nine million words? It was wonderful, Jordan. I oh, think you did you. a great it job. Was, it was exactly forty five hundred words. <laughs> it was great. Um, I had I had to like pare down my notes to one page. Um, <laughs> so it it contains a lot of information, and I'm kind of just going to ask if you don't mind interview you about it. Yeah, sure. So as I understand it, like welfare. And, you know, people say welfare, they mean all sorts of things. What we're talking about here started in the Great Depression, right? Yeah. Or right after the Great Depression. Exactly. Can you tell us how it started? Yeah. So, I mean, typically when we talk about welfare, I mean, like you said, it, it, people kind of lump all sorts of different things into it. But for this discussion, we're talking about the program the federal government uses to send cash to the poor, right? And especially poor mothers. Um and in fact, it has that in it, right? Yeah. Families with dependent children. It's yeah. only for uh, f- families with children. Yeah, and during the well, um, well, so so poor people who don't have children, those like fuck those people. Basically, this is just if you've spawned. Basically, this okay. Is, this is the this is the the law. This is kind of a, a feature of America's safety net. We've focused on family sending cash to families with children. In fact, we can think when, of it as focusing on poor children. Yeah, you can in a lot of ways. Um, and so during the Great Depression, uh, the Social Security Act passes, and um, you get this program that became known as AFDC, Aid for uh, Dependent. Um, Families it, it, with it, it, sorry, having a brain fart. Aid for families with dependent children. Actually, um, if I'm recalling right, even before it became called that, it was just aid for children or something like that. There was no families part. Um, it, but really, it was for widows. It was for widows to take care of their kids. Um, and then 
over time, um, the program shifted, and it was the money was going less to you know widows and more to single moms. And that so, was, so just to be clear here, yeah. the, the the focus is on kids. This welfare, as we're talking about it here, was never a social safety net for. Americans to say, if you have no money, then we will make sure you have enough money to live. This is just for short people, basically. Families. Families. I mean, it was for families. And, you know, in a sense, money's fungible. That's the thing you have to remember. So if you're giving money to the child, in a lot of ways, you're you're giving it to, you know, his or her mother as well. Um, And there were some married couples also on the program. Um, They don't get talked about as often, but there were some two-parent families that benefited as well. But it's not for everyone, and specifically, it's not for childless adults. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the... Exactly. And so, you know, we, now we don't talk a lot about welfare, right? Um, but in, it just it doesn't come up a lot. Um, and in fact, that's because of welfare reform, which passed 20 years ago back in 1996. And that's why I was writing this article, kind of um, looking back at what's transpired since then. But if you look back at the 90s, I mean, welfare was just this huge issue. Bill Clinton, um, you know, his signature campaign promise was ending welfare as we know it, as we know it. Yeah, that's what he said he was going to do. He was going to limit it so that um, after two years, you were out of the program and you had to go find a job. And that kind of, in a way, defined him as this new Democrat. Okay, so so this is this is something which, you know, I can't imagine any current Democrat saying. And this kind of, for me, cuts against this idea that the Democratic Party is just moving inexorably to the right. Can you just go back in time a little bit and explain to me what was so bad about welfare that Bill Clinton wanted to end it? Yeah, well, let me let me jump in here because, um, and yeah. you can correct me if I, <laughs> yeah, if sure, I no, sure. misrepresent. But uh, as I understand it, there was a huge uh, surge in uh, um, welfare um, recipients in the early nineties. Like the welfare actually peaked in nineteen ninety four at five million families, nine point six million children, and, and almost five million adults. And the main point of it is that almost half the recipients were black or brown people, and there was yeah. just enormous undercurrent of racism. It's just because it wasn't simply like, oh, we're going to help children. It, there was this kind of moralistic, oh, um, you know, you're, you're, we're breeding dependency. We're ruining the family structure. People aren't getting married. Even the charges of people aren't getting married, so they'll be yeah. eligible for this stuff. And and there was racism. Yeah, so there was this there so, was sort so of what two was, discussions what, what going on. What was Bill Clinton's stated reason for ending well, welfare? Well, so, yeah, it, what's interesting is there were sort of these – two conversations about welfare going up, lots of conversations. Um, And there was one that was sort of driven by race. And if you looked at studies at the time, you know, people's opinions of welfare uh, were kind of tracked to their opinions about black people more generally. Um, And, you know, there was this idea that somehow giving single mothers checks was convincing them not to marry and just have more children and, you know, breed. I mean, it was, there was really a lot of awful rhetoric. Um, But that that wasn't coming from Clinton, right? So Clinton, there was this, other kind of you want to say kind of um, strain of progressive reformer thought, um, and the idea was that if you looked at welfare, it actually did have a lot of problems. Um, the program, you know, about about a quarter of the women or the families on the program would end up on it for ten years or more, and that a lot of people just didn't think that that was healthy. Uh, in part because it, the benefits weren't that great. It wasn't a, a wonderful way for a child to grow up um, if that if that was most of their resources, um, and they weren't really getting much of an example of someone in their household working things along those lines. And so there was this idea that. Not only were there inherent flaws in the program, but eventually just the public's kind of 
discussed with you know people being on the dole would collapse would, would, would just overwhelm it and eventually welfare would be eliminated so there needed to be some kind of reform to make this more geared towards getting people onto work um so the way the way you said yeah. it and I, I think this is to, to Felix's question, yeah. there were the carrots and the sticks, and the like. Progressives were were more in favor of carrots, which was like job training and even sometimes job guarantees that didn't make the final bill. Yeah. Well, but although although like, what did happen, to be fair, yeah. is that welfare reform, a large part of it involved this thing called the earned income tax credit, which went on to become much bigger than welfare had ever been and has yeah. transformed the lives so, of the poor, so, not the poorest of the poor, but has transformed the lives of the working poor. So what's interesting about that, and yeah, so this kind of comes back to what Clinton was trying to do when he showed up in office, right? And he had this idea that he was going to reform welfare. And people talk about this thing, the earned income tax credit as part of welfare reform. And um, I mean, this is a a huge social policy. It does not get talked about often enough. Essentially, it just supplements, it's a refundable tax credit that, you know, boosts after-tax wages for low earners, right? And and to be clear, refundable tax credit is this weird fiscal jargon, which no one really means. It's a check. Yeah, it's a check. You you don't even really need to pay tax to get it. That point about refundable means you just get a check whether you pay tax. Yeah, but you do that. need to have yeah. a job. You have to, you have to be working. And yeah, so, the, the earned income thing is important. Yeah, yeah you need yeah. an earned income. And so it makes low-wage jobs much more lucrative. Um, and this was one of the ideas – Like this had been around for a bit. The idea of expanding this had been part of the the sort of notion of progressive welfare reform for a while. And one of the first things Clinton did in office back in 1993 was double it. So this was before, you know, you actually had real the, the real welfare reform bill. He'd already expanded this tax credit, which now is worth about seventy billion dollars a year. Um, at you know, welfare as it exists now is worth about sixteen point five billion, right? Just to give you a sense, and the EITC is bigger than welfare ever was. So Clinton comes in, he he expands the EITC, and then in nineteen ninety four he puts forward sort of a, a progressive vision of welfare reform after his health care attempts had, had failed. And it involved things like saying, okay, after two years, you have to leave the welfare program. You can't keep getting regular check from the government, but we're going to guarantee you a job um, or some sort of government subsidized job. And if we can't get you a job, then you can kind of stay in the program. There are all these exceptions. Um, the problem was eventually Republicans took over. Democrats were already split on this. Republicans take over. And instead, you get this totally different vision called TANF. Um, and TANF is gets rid of the old welfare program, and it creates something called temporary assistance for needy families. And you can talk a lot about what TANF did to try and encourage work. Um, but, you know, I mean, it did things like put time limits on how long you could get welfare to, you know, for five years in a lifetime. Um, it did things like require states to ensure that uh, a certain percentage of their welfare recipients are working. But the thing I focus on in my article, um, and I think is really key to understanding kind of where welfare is now and, and where it may be going in the future is they they do this thing called block granting, right? Right. So it's the budget of of yeah. how TANF is paid for. So whereas the original welfare system was federal federal government payments. It was in, it was it was an entitlement. And it was, you know, if you were poor, the federal government and the states were guaranteed to give you a check. They paid for it together. But that safety net if you were poor enough was always going to be there. You had a, you had a legal right to it. Well as long as you had a kid. As long as you had a kid, exactly. Which is, I mean, that's a lot of families. Um, you, know, you know, people tend to have children. <laughs> and so, so post the yeah. uh, Clinton bill, yeah. we have uh, basically lump sums going to states. Yeah. And, and so, then the states spend those lump sums on a bunch of stuff, which is not cash payments to families. With depending children. on the state. Yeah. And, and the result of this, because we do need to start <laughs> wrapping yeah. this up, the result of this is that 
we have created an underclass of families and individuals who are extremely poor and who are getting essentially zero government. Well, yeah, so I have this. I have a couple statistics. Yeah. So Clinton's b- bill basically incentivized people to go back to work, but the people who didn't make it back to work went into deep poverty. That's basically the understanding now. So we have um, almost tripling of the growth in children who live on less than $2 a day since that bill. Yeah. And we have 700,000 more children living below half the poverty yeah. line than yeah. we did then. And that should be zero. To be clear, the poverty line is is a really nasty line, which you should never, ever want to be below. Half the poverty line right. is just unspeakable. In, in an advanced country like the U.S., zero people yeah. should be living on and, half the poverty I, line. I should say, you know, the legacy of what TANF did is a, a little bit complicated in the sense that, you know, poverty most, – most economists looked at it think actually poverty did decrease partly as a result of these reforms um, that – Regular, like regular poverty, right? Like medium poverty. I hate using that term. But, you know, people who are at the threshold, there were fewer people who were right around that threshold um, because more women went to work, did not rely on welfare checks, whatnot. But the problem that now people are seeing is this issue of deep poverty. And so you have this split. And that's part of the reason why um, welfare's legacy is so contentious now. On the one hand, it may have actually done some good. Um, but at the same time, it left the, the people who lost really lost. So to get into distribution thing, yeah. I, I hope our all our listeners so, like. So I mean, I want to just like, let's just finish here with yeah. with this question for Jordan, which is: are these two sides of the same coin. In order to take as many women out of poverty as welfare reform did and the ITC and all of that, um, in order to create the positive effects of welfare reform, did you somehow have to create this new incredibly deep poverty underclass or could you have done the former without the latter? So this is sort of this uh, kind of wonky historical debate now, but I I think, no, you didn't have to. I think um, one of the issues was that the way – the funding mechanism works. It gives states so much free realm just to use, quote, welfare money for almost anything they want. I mean, a lot of welfare money now gets spent on things like child protective services, not on things that in any way help the poor. And there, well, I mean, there, it helps poor children, doesn't it? I mean, we're talking about like adoption agencies and things oh, like that. Okay. Like, you know, things like um, the foster care system that should be funded through state money anyway, instead of helping poor families get to work. And I, there were certainly ways you could have done welfare reform that insured states actually spent the money on the people and the projects it was supposed to be spent on. And that didn't really happen. And so part of my message in the end of this article is just that even if you thought that the that welfare needed to change and you needed to get more women to work, there were better bills to write. And this kind of legislation we got from Tan- from Clinton that he basically kind of caved to the Republicans on was one of the worst ways to go about it. I just want to jump in and blow one last thing because yeah. the economist, uh, and, you know, the researcher in me thinks yeah. given that the states did different things, yeah. that we could actually look into this question. Some of the states did really – crazy things. Some of them sort of kept on doing other yeah. the, the things that were happening beforehand. So we could probably answer that with, is, with data. This is actually a really, one of the most sad parts of, of the bill itself, right, of Clinton's welfare reform. Before Clinton passed welfare reform, there was this thing called the waiver system where states, and he, he gave out a lot of these, where states were allowed to start experimenting with different ideas for how to change their system, but they had to do some sort of evaluation. And often, typically, that was a randomized control trial. So they had to do a real experimental evaluation. When TANF passed, when current, when new welfare came about, that was no longer required. So you didn't need to evaluate it in the same strict way you had before. So 
a lot of the opportunities to try and look at what worked were just passed up. And so it, there are just a, like a lot of there are a lot of separate tragedies to the way welfare reform was executed. Um, and I just think you know the fact that a lot of people talk about it as a model for reforming other parts of the welfare state, like food stamps, is kind of frightening because if you look closely at it, the again even if you agree with the goals, the execution is just really terrible in a lot of ways. Okay. On which note, we're going to move on to a slightly happier story about paying working class people more money. Um, But first, I'm going to talk about Trunk Club, which is for, I would say, most of the men listening to this podcast um, don't like shopping for clothes. You're an exception, though. Felix. No, I, I am absolutely among okay. them. I Look, I'm looking like at the incredible outfit you're wearing. I am today. wearing an incredible. I am wearing. Well, I am wearing a linen suit, which I had not just any linen suit made in Singapore. Um, no, sorry, in Shanghai. Uh, sorry, that that's most obnoxiously anyone said <laughs> <laughs> for a long time. I am wearing a linen suit, which I got made for me in Shanghai. But no, it was. There's something very personalized about going to get a suit made for you, which is a completely different um, experience from walking into a store or shopping mall and looking at racks and trying to work out where you can try things on and trying to work out whether they fit. And it's, it's, it's unpleasant. And then you get those weird, like pushy salespeople who always tell you that you look good, even when you don't, (laughs) and you're second guessing and it's expensive and it's, you always, there's something you'd much rather be doing. Mm -hmm. And here's, something better, okay. okay, which is basically that you get a very friendly person on the internet who's only just on the internet, so you, they don't pester you in the way that the sh- store assistants can. And they will just ask you, what kind of things do you need? You know, I need a new pair of pants, I need a jacket. I, you know, the, up to and including, I will say, custom tailored suits. They will actually, you can, you can go in and have a proper tailor, like bespoke, make you exactly what you want if you want a linen suit. You can have a linen suit made, and it'll look great. Um, but the the core of what they do is is off the rack clothes, really good ones, high end ones, which they just talk to you, they get to know you, and then they put them in this little beautiful cardboard box, send it to you in the mail, and you try them all on, and you get to put wear them around her, at home, see whether they're comfortable, think about it for a couple of days. Put them on, take them off. You know, oh, maybe I should, maybe I want a different color. You know, and then whichever ones you want, you just keep. And then the other ones you just put back in the box, send it back. The shipping both ways is completely free, and it's easy, and it's in your own time, and it just kind of fits into the interstices of your time. People always have more free time when they're sitting around at home than they do when they're out and about. And the idea of going shopping is just this thing which. We don't need that anymore. Yeah, I, I get like I got to tell you, if I'm in a department store for more than ten minutes, I get like a coma. I'm in a coma. I like shopping. Wow, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> okay, so Kathy, you should yeah. you and me. No, we're, I'm we're do like this for my kids. I have like oh, old, I live with four men who hate shopping. Yeah, this is good. Um, so what what you do if you want to try this out, and you should get, give it a go because it's kind of a fun experience. Is you go to trunkclub.com slash money and you just sort of type in your measurements share your likes and dislikes and you get your very own personal stylist who will send you a bunch of clothes and that's it it's it's easy and it's a no harm no foul if you don't like any of them just send them all back and but you will because it's um 
It's great. It's it's backed by Nordstrom, so they'll have super high quality, super high customer service, the whole thing. Um, trunk, trunkclub.com slash money. Give it a go. Uh, Jordan. Yes. Victory for the working man or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it was a victory for some working man. Uh, no. So uh, the... The workers united have suddenly <laughs> won something. I was going to say, uh, the labor movement had a, had a victory this week, which is uh, a preciously rare thing. Um, although, eh, less so lately, maybe, depending how you define it. But anyway, um, so Verizon struck a new contract with its union, right? There had been a massive strike. It was big enough that it actually impacted this week's, uh, this month's job numbers. But um, they... You know, have a new it was very visible. I mean, yeah, every time was, you he, walked anywhere, all the presidential candidates talked to the Verizon strikers. Well, yeah. I mean, not all of them. And, and yeah. w- suddenly walking around downtown New York, every Verizon yeah. store had pickets outside of it. It's a big yeah. deal. I mean, it was like 39,000 workers were striking, right? Um, and, what, you know, this was uh, – it was by the people who install your landlines, install your cable um, and your, you know, internet – um, so there's really two different classes of workers at Verizon, we should mention. Yeah, right? so what's interesting about this is they were striking essentially because, well, they wanted a new contract, um, and they wanted to prevent Verizon from doing things like offshoring call center workers, right, things along those lines. Um, but the, Verizon really has kind of two businesses, right? It's got its job, like, giving you cable, getting it to your apartment so you can watch Game of Thrones or whatever on HBO. And then it's got its other business that you're familiar with, which is, you know, wireless services. It's got its Verizon stores. And um, the labor costs for that, you know, cable and internet business and is a lot are a lot higher because they have all these unionized workers. And so it seemed like Verizon was investing a lot more money into its wireless business, which is not unionized or had not been unionized. Um and so this is this new contract is kind of a victory on two th- fronts. One is the obvious one is that they've gotten all these guarantees now for the cable business. And so they feel like they're going to end up adding jobs, and that's good as far as the, the union's concerned. But then also, this is a little smaller but really an interesting point, is that they've managed to also cover a few of the retail store workers in th- their new contract or with a new union contract. And so it seems like maybe this is – a, a victory in the long and difficult and often failed struggle to unionize retail. So there's actually only a couple hundred or a few hundred um, like Verizon, like cell phone Verizon workers that are now unionized. Yeah, it's a small number. But, but, what, but is it, does it open the door for all of those workers to become parts of the union? I mean, I don't know if it, it does that, but I mean, it's a, it's a step, right? I mean, that's, that's how you have to, these things are incremental. You don't expect it overnight. And... You know, this isn't like, oh, well, Verizon workers are are now unionized, so we're suddenly going to see this at The Gap at McDonald's and everywhere else. But, you know, it's just a – it's a signal that this is possible. There's this big question hanging over the labor movement over whether you even really can unionize retail workers because they tend to, you know, go in and out of jobs so quickly. They tend – you know, they're they're temporary. They're part-time. Yeah, they don't have the same commitment to a day-in, day-out job like a factory worker does. So at least, you know, this is – you well, know, maybe that's because sign. they're not unionized and their jobs suck. Yeah, maybe. And so, like, yeah, this is, you know, it's, it's you know, it's, it's a, again, it's a, it's a step in the direction that labor wants to see. One of the things I find interesting is that they, one of the victories um, of this new contract is they basically force Verizon not to offshore jobs. Yeah. And that's obviously a big, big deal in the presidential um, race right now. 
Um, and it happens I'm, through I'm union, be, I'm union organizing. I'm beginning to think that the reason why I've not been able to get fi- Verizon FiOS at my at my home is precisely because Verizon had offshored all of the FiOS installers, <laughs> yeah. and they're, and they're all in France. <laughs> and then they're, they're like, "Yeah, we'd love to, we'd of love course, to give you yeah, FiOS yeah, in your yeah. home." But unfortunately, all of our workers not are all in not every single kind of worker can be offshored. Well, You're so, right, Felix. So the, is, so the the people that install the wires, although cannot. although to be to be slightly more serious here. Um, people have spent a huge amount of time try- looking into this question of why, given the uh, degree to which it's pushing this file service and given the degree to which everyone wants files, why is it so difficult for people like me to get files? And no one really knows the true answer, but a lot of the answer does seem to be that the senior management of Verizon just doesn't like investing in the unionized pits of the business nearly as much as they like investing in the ununionized wireless. Pits. I'm just look. I'm just trying to say, and I know we're not allowed to say his name, but no, no, know, we're not allowed to say his name. So let's not. He's, so it's, he, I'm he's, just saying, some presidential candidates are saying, you know, you can count on me to not let jobs leave the U.S. And maybe what we should be thinking is, you can count on unions to help well, so, prevent that. So this is interesting. I mean, you know, Verizon's not the first company that struck a deal like this with the unions. A few years. I, I remember back in 2011, 20, in 2011, the United Auto Workers did something similar where they said, okay, you're going to keep X number of jobs in the U.S. And the way they do it is saying you have to add X number of jobs um, to American plants over. And so it's similar with Verizon. You have to add X number of jobs. That way, you know, even if you do send some things overseas, you still have to build exactly, up the, yeah. um, the U.S. worker base. So it's they're not the first ones to do this, but it is a um, – I think it's a very popular move by unions. They know it's a really good PR move. You know, a, part of the problem that uh, uh, organized labor faces is in parts of the country, it is deeply unpopular. There are a lot of corners of the U.S. that hate unions for, you know, for rational reasons and irrational reasons, um, mostly irrational in my opinion. But this is one thing that they can do and show that they can do that, you know, I, I think is probably going to pull really well. So let me ask you in the great eternal fight between capital and labor. If this is great for the unions, if this is great for labor, uh, is it fair to assume that the stock market hated it? Uh, no, if I recall right, they did not. Uh, no, they did not hate it. Um, they were. In I fact, mean, the price, the stock price, was going down during the strike. Yeah, I understand it. because they were like, a, Verizon's just losing customers, losing opportunities right now because their their service is crippled. Um, which is kind of what you know. The best of all, this is kind of the best of all possible ways uh, the market as the market could, rea- could react as far as labor is concerned. Because basically, by striking, they brought down the stock price, and then by relenting and signing a deal, the stock price went back up, and so. That that's, that's kind of the pattern you want to see if you are the communications workers of America. Win, 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 win. Win, as win, win, As far as they're concerned, yeah. Okay. So we are going to move on to the numbers round. Great. Um, first of all, I need to bring you a message from our sponsor. Slate Money is brought to you by Goldman Sachs. For answers to the world's most pressing economic questions, from the industries at risk of disruption to understanding bouts of market volatility, tune in to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, the firm's podcast. Each episode features in-depth discussions with some of the firm's leading experts on the markets, evolving industries, and the global economy. Subscribe to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or listen at gs.com slash podcast. All right, Kathy, what's your number? My number is seven. Um, So I am fascinated by uh, the 
sort of the standardized test system in the United States, uh, the various standardized tests and all the test prep and all, we think it's fair because it's standardized, but then, you know, there's inequality that's seeping in because of test prep and other things. Well, we ain't got nothing on China. So there's a 2,000-year-old test called the high exam, also Gaokao. I don't know if I'm yep. pronouncing that right. Um, uh, it's it's very competitive to the point where kids will spend about two and a half years or more um, just doing nothing else except we're preparing for the exam. It's how you it, get into the civil service, it's, right? It's Yeah, it's basically your opportunity to go to be really educated yeah. and you have to do really well on this and test. How old are you when you take this test? I think you're at the end of high school, so okay. I want to say 18. Anyway, it turns out that uh, an, an urban kid is seven times more likely to get into college than an, an a rural kid. And okay. 11 times more likely to get into an elite college. So this is interesting. So there's cutoffs, and the question is who get, passes those cutoffs? I'm going to do that thing where I extend the numbers around way longer than Felix <laughs> wants me to. But anyway, so this is interesting because you always hear about how good uh, Chinese students do on the international tests like PISA, right, that tell, oh, uh, Chinese kids are like whipping American students. Students, they're oh, right. so much smarter. And but the thing is, those tests are typically based on students in places like Shanghai or even Hong Kong, which is a little separately. But they're based in the coastal urban centers, um, which are extremely rich, basically first world standards in a lot of ways. And so I, I think this is a and really the kids are test prepped to death. Exactly. And, and, this is and a great they make great suits. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh now, my Felix. gosh. <laughs> I just want to say, so Felix's suit is bright orange. It's not bright. Or, no, it's, it's I'm sorry. It's pale. Burnt, it's it's like almost burnt orange with some wow. pale orange pinstripes. I think it's gorgeous. It, I love it. It's a, he's the, a peacock. This is the purest expression of Felix's personality, given that he had he. This is custom made for him by those students in Shanghai who didn't get into college. Who didn't get into college? <laughs> but but no, I mean I think this is this is a clearly a sign of why China's urbanization policy makes sense. If you want people to do better in exams, the thing that you do is you move the population from the rural areas into the cities, which is exactly what China is doing. You know, what's interesting about that is that the place that the kids have to take the test is based on where their parents are from. So you have a bunch of urban youths actually having to go back to the um, uh, to the country to take the test. Oh, fascinating. It's really weird, yeah. Uh, number, Jordan? My number is uh, 116,000. We had the jobs report this week for May. It was not good. Nope. Um, the number of jobs added was uh, 38,000, although that was dinged a little bit because of the Verizon strike. But even if you double that, like say 70, 80,000, uh, it's, it's still not good. Um, over the past three months, we have averaged 116,000 new jobs per month. The three months before then, we averaged 224,000. And that was healthy, but now it's That was healthy. So we are – everyone's kind of looking at this, and you're not supposed to take month-to-month changes in the jobs report too seriously, but the the trend looks like we're slowing down. And really, I'm just hoping the Federal Reserve is watching this because one wrong move, and I feel like they are accidentally going to make he who must not be named (laughs) into the uh, other president. And, like, Janet Yell, if she does – like. There's even an argument at this point they really should be cutting interest rates because it looks like the economy is slowing down. And if you – the argument – you know, it's this thing called passive tightening. If the economy is slowing down and you leave interest rates where they are, you are effectively tightening interest rates. Um, Some, you know, academics blame the great – this on the the great recession on this kind of an effect. I think that's a little overboard, but nonetheless, they do. So right now, I really feel like the Fed should be – 
very, very thoughtful about how they're handling the economy. I was the one who said that the Fed is not going to raise rates again this year. And, and what the, yeah, what, you the one thing that yeah. seems certain in the, in the wake of this jobs report is they're not going to raise rates in June. Yes. So we will see what happens I, after that. I want them to drop money on the economy like confetti at this point. Like, from, from helicopters. Yeah. From a helicopter. From helicopters. Seriously, just through the Canyon of Heroes in New York. Just drop money. <laughs> My Yeah, that's the last place we need money. Um, maybe we should just... <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. Give, it, give, it, give money to poor people. How about that? That's an idea. I literally just said it dropped money on Wall Street by accident. That was not my intention, listeners. <laughs> it just kind of, I was thinking of a sports parade with confetti. Anyway, continue, Felix. 2,520. What's that? Is the median size in square feet of a new single family house sold in 2015. Hmm. This is by, this is a number which has been going up and up and up for 30 years uh, and hit a new all-time high in 2015 as it does pretty much every year. Why the a typical family in America needs two and a half thousand square feet, I really don't understand. But this is this is where we're going. This is how this many people is, are living in these households. Is it like do you still have? I don't think households are getting any bigger in if, terms of number of people. Can you imagine? What, I thought like, they were though. I thought like nobody's ever leaving home. <laughs> imagine what like an Irish family from like 1908 New York would think. Like one of those families that, like packed like 16 into some like tenement <laughs> yeah, house. I know. Like if they saw one of these homes, they'd be like, oh. <laughs> I, know, I mean, I guess the other question is who's buying it? These homes. It's not probably not the same people that are have their all their relatives. No, living and, with so, them. So, so these are new homes, and the people who buy new homes are richer. And you know, they. But the point is the time series. the The new homes that people are building are getting bigger and bigger, and are being built for richer and richer families. I guess yeah. because, like, it's not like the median income has been going up over those right. over those years. So, it, so I guess what this says to me is that the home construction industry is just going after like a bunch of people who are not normal. Yeah. And normal people so, are not buying I new homes. I think we can all agree so on that. Th- there was this theory that I and other people wrote about after the recession that in order to cater to millennials specifically, home builders were going to have to cut back on size just because millennials could not afford homes and, this and big. And developers were like, we're not listening to you. <laughs> no, instead they were just like – Fuck the millennials! No, 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 the, no. The home builders, the home builders are, are one step ahead of you. Yeah. The home builders are saying we're going to sell to people who realize that their kids are going to be living with them into their thirties. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you need a whole extra wing just for your kids. Oh my yeah. god! There was such a despicable Wall Street Journal article about, and Shane re- retweeted it about these people who are like their second home is also in Manhattan. Oh, it's god. like a home away from home. It's like fuck uh, these people. Uh, so. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, I've that's up there with that. F- that that was the other big hate read this week was the one in the FT about the poor family who's struggling by on two hundred thousand pounds a year, which is like three hundred thousand dollars a year. There was wasn't there. I mean, there were a lot of those around the Romney campaign where you know people were talking about raising taxes on people who made above two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. So everyone who made two hundred fifty thousand dollars wrote a personal essay about how <laughs> cash strapped they were and how their kids' private school was really draining their finances. It was just what I want to find is I want to find one of these essays, and these essays come around on a pretty regular basis. Of you know, I'm making a six figure salary, and I'm just scraping by. I just want to find one, just one, which doesn't mention private school or school fees. It's always about this like incredibly elite thing that rich people do, which is send their kids to private schools, and take take that away, and all of these stories just. Go up in smoke. Uh, you, they, they, they still have rent to worry about, but yes, it, private school is expensive. Yeah. 
Okay, that is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Um, do subscribe to us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave us a review there. Write to us, slatemoney at slate.com. Uh, many thanks to Jason DeLeon, who's recorded the show this week as well as our producer, Audrey Quinn, and the executive producer, Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers, and the whole panoply of panoply podcasts. iTunes.com slash panoply for all of them. We will talk to you next week on Sleep Money. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.